What's up, everybody? This week, I'm talking with Dr. Thaddeus Johnson from Georgia State University about his research on policing. This is episode 57 of On Tenure Tracks. and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, uh, I was looking at the impact of education on police behavior. And oftentimes the body of research that's kind of disappointed because conventional wisdom is that a better educated officer uh, is a better officer. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the issue is that uh, we don't look at policing like an industry. Yes, it's a public service, but it's a job with enterprising people. And anytime you have and the research shows, not just in Korea, but just permit BOI uh, uh, across fields, is that these workers, particularly economics, these workers, you think about human capital theory, tend to be more productive, uh, tend to perform better, uh, tend to have more output in their industries. Well, policing is an industry. What's the performance metrics? There's a lot of things, but we know that you build your resume. And, and mind you, I was a police officer in Memphis for 10 years. I trained officers in, in firearms and defensive tactics, and I also uh, was a ranking officer when I left. So I got a chance to work as a patrol commander, got a chance to kind of work a little bit in training some, and also in the special operations. So I got a little bit, I got lucky, was able to, to uh, get a taste of the different aspects of, of policing. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of the day, the thing is this uh, you have to show productivity. Yeah. How are you qualified in policing? Contacts. Uh, the contacts of whether it's uh, investigatory stops, cherry stops, whether you're talking about traffic stops, and whether you're talking about making arrests. They're prize, right? They're the prize we all go for, the arrest. Now, mind you, police officers are not thinking about it. And I'm talking too much. Please tell me just shut the hell up, right? But mind you, police <laughs> officers uh, are enterprising workers, right? And so if my productivity and I'm judged on my performance, now imagine I'm a new officer, have a college degree, they put me on a midnight shift. And say South Memphis, right? The area I grew up in, a rough neighborhood. You want to get off that ship. How do you get off? You're highly productive. And you're usually probably going to be in a, in a neighborhood that's either uh, of color or uh, lower socioeconomic status. Over policing these neighborhoods as not a means to resolve crime per se, but think about it in the context of an industry. Yep. All right. Uh, and so that my work kind of sting, uh, stems from that. Uh, I've done some work with uh, Rick Rosenfeld and Richard Wright, and we found that these officers made more discretionary arrests, stops, and searches. Uh, other research would kind of align with it. And so I started looking at police shootings, mm-hmm. or justifiable police shootings with the data that I have. Research shows that proactive officers tend to... Proactivity can be a precursor to... Uh, use of force events. Right? Yeah. Think about it. You make more arrests. You know, they're not happy about it. Uh, probably more resistance. Right? We don't know the levels of force, but we know it's more force. And particularly, proactivity. 
And sometimes officers tend to get themselves in situations where because of their eagerness, deadly force may be the only option out. Uh, the research about these officers have been mixed. And I'm working on a project right now where I took the leanest data from 1987, all the data, to 2016, the newest data. I was able to accumulate a panel, a balanced panel of 122 agencies uh, serving populations over 100,000. Uh, now, mind you, this is only justifiable police shootings. Mm-hmm. And with their racial differences. And what I've found is, is that um, in a difference, in, in a generalized difference in difference, that the impact, there's positive impact of education on police shootings involving black citizens. Not statistically significant for whites, not statistically significant overall, but significant, a significant increase uh, in the risk of black, black residents being killed uh, in cities that adopt an education uh, requirement or college minimum for their officers. Now, I just found this finding maybe three weeks, and I've been digging, digging, digging. I've done all type of modeling methods, uh, different outcomes, inputs, robustness, sensitivity analysis. Uh, even uh, worked with uh, I worked with Bill Sable, uh, and, and, and and let me kind of back up. Yeah, part of this work also stems from my racial disparity work in imprisonment. Oftentimes, people forget that it's the front end processes, i.e., the decisions that officers make that has an impact on the back end, even parole decisions, right? So think about it. You have, say, a black guy, me, and I have a weed arrest, right, for possession. In the state of Georgia, that weed arrest, when I go in front of parole, is weighted with a race-neutral uh, risk assessment instrument, uh, weighted just about the same as felony assault or burglary or something like that. And so imagine if I had, I'm in the neighborhood being over-policed by these college guys or just over-eager officers, and I have this criminal history. That front-end process can cause me to stay in prison longer. What Bill and I found out was that even though black offending rates, uh, the arrest rates, the mixed per arrest, and all these things have gone down since 2000 uh, as far as the imprisonment, racial disparities and imprisonment, and imprisonment, which have also gone down, in a subsequent, uh, you're still finding that blacks tend to serve uh, more time in jail. They can expect to be in prison a little bit longer. Yeah. We did a supplemental, another analysis, and we saw that, wow, the police are responsible for more of the disparity than we even thought. And so it really brought me back into, I was originally looking at, you know, uh, drug disparities and, and public order arrests. Now, mind you, my provisional findings show that that policy adoption is also associated with increases in, the, uh, in black arrest rates for public order offenses and drug offenses, particularly weed possession offenses, Right. So all these things bring my thesis together that productivity uh, can lead to increases in that because these are enterprising people, right? So that gets to my whole point of that if we want to really reform the police, and so this is kind of a story that I hope is not all over the place. If you really want to reform the police, we have to do more than just have an education policy. You have to change the reward structure because if I don't reward officers for the 80% of the job they do, and I weigh heavily the 10 to 20% of the job they do, uh, guess what they're going to focus on? They're going to focus on that 20%. What about the 80%? What if they're, they, 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 they make the same amount of stops? They decide, you know what, I'm not going to write tickets in every instance. I'm just going to use the contact and, and justice. You know what, I'm looking out for you. Right? I just want to make contact, make sure you are all right. Uh, what if we remove that whole thing? Because when the officer makes on the scene, now these things speak for myself, it's anecdotal. I'm not going there because, oh, I want to make society better. 
I'm investigating some type of crime. Why not take the criminal off the street so I can build my resume? And people don't say that, right? And that may not be popular, but that's the truth. And I, and, and I might give in trouble. Uh, but we have to also think about, you know, the deployment strategies and communities that they're, they're deployed in, right? And this is a bad analogy, but whatever. I'm not going to friends, right? <laughs> if I'm a fisherman and I want to eat, I'm not going to go fish in a pond that nobody catches fish in. So I'm going to catch my fish where the fish are biting at, while no other fishermen were gone and they've gotten bites at, right? Not necessarily worry about the quality of the fish. I just want to eat. And so, in policing, and if we don't change the rewards, find out that, uh, particularly we talk about hiring college-educated officers, uh, that we're going to see outcomes that didn't expect outcomes that we don't want. I, my mind is blown. <laughs> because, and, but like, in a good way, right? Because I, I talk a lot, and I think a lot about, uh, like the purpose of education. And at least with my, with my undergraduates, they have to do the senior capstone. Um, and part of their capstone project is policy recommendation. And I, I bet you 99% of them say education as, as a policy recommendation for whatever their study is, right? And we ask them, or at least I ask them, like, what do you mean by education? Do you mean, like, more school or what? And uh, they, they always kind of aren't sure <laughs> what, what, to, what they mean, but they have the sense that education is universally good. And so to hear that police who have more education are more likely to be involved in, in these shootings, I think would, like, I'm really uh, interested to bring this to my, to my students and like hear what they, what they think about it. But then at the same time, like thinking about the history of policing, right. And uh, Bill Parker and the LAPD in the in the forties and fifties as like the guy who revolutionized policing and, and emphasizing, you know, a college education for his department, um, and how violent the LAPD became on his watch, and, and like, and and how approving he was of it. Um, it, it totally like from that sense, it like this makes perfect sense. And let me jump in and say this. Let me say this. I'm not sure if the policy is bad or good, but I do know this. Police officers in general, particularly when they feel that uh, the mission is legitimate, right? This is legitimate. They're policy compliant, right? They're, they're going to follow the policy. What we find with conscious care officers is that the fact that they may be more in tune with the culture, the mission, the reward structures, and they behave accordingly. That's why I kind of make the, make the, the, the counter-argument, well, if those are their qualities and they do that well, what if we provide them with different incentive structures, mm-hmm. right? And then maybe like with LAPD, which you know has a culture of that, these college officers, they know, well, this is a culture I need to activate myself so I can move forward. It kind of kills any benefit that college education would have on policing in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It also reminded me of a, a former chief that I, I know here um, who retired and is now a, a probation officer. Um, and he's like the epitome of like the grizzled old cop guy, you know. And he, at one at an event we were doing, like a community thing, he was like just he was so mad that day, and he was like complaining about how uh, these days these new officers who come in and join the department 
um, they have they don't care about doing the job. Uh, they're just concerned about getting promoted. And so he had this this whole speech about like uh, you know a major problem with policing that nobody in the public really thinks about is that you have all these like promotion oriented guys coming in, men and women coming in, um, who are are putting in the bare minimum amount of time on the street. So they can start taking, you know, exams to get promoted up. And then you have like a bloated, much like I read, you have a bloated bureaucracy, um, an administration that uh, just wanted, that just viewed it like a, a means to a bigger paycheck instead of like the community service part of it. Right. And, and think about this. So, so what we also find is college officers tend to be more frustrated with the job, tend to have lower levels of contentment. Exactly what you said. There's like economics, right? You, you you have our limited wants and desires, but there are limited positions, mm-hmm. right? There's limited trading opportunities. You can't change everybody from shift to shift. So you're going to have some guys who are stuck, and you have this theory called expectancy theory uh, that really uh, really coincides with the behaviors and the attitudes of college-educated individuals, particularly workers. It's the fact that if, or entitlement uh, theory, if I put forth uh, this effort, mm-hmm. I'm putting forth because I have a goal in mind. If I don't get that, I would become frustrated. And research has shown that these college-educated officers, once they are promoted or reassigned, that frustration tends to alleviate. See what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. uh, all these things are connected, and the problem is in our research, we don't treat officers like they're human beings. right? I just did a study uh, using Baltimore data, looking at police shootings, and and, and it had measures of like burnout, uh, involvement in, part, you know, in, in intimate partner violence at home, mm-hmm. uh, dehumanizing attitudes, police apathy, we got to account for uh, job frustrations, uh, satisfaction. We got to account for these things because there are people. And so most of the research out there, again, I'm not going to make friends, as, <laughs> as well as uh, most research in general, but particularly in this case, there's a media variable bias. The research is completely mixed. Uh, there hadn't been moderating or mediating analyses and things of the sort. Uh, and so these are the type of things that we need to start looking at. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. it's vulnerable of early 1900s. You need more education because of the uh, emergent technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Back in back then, 1931, uh, they needed because they said officers uh, couldn't pass uh, the army entrance exam. Then you move forward to 1968, urban unrest, um, uh, uh, civil unrest, civil rights, uh, impartial police brutality. Oh, we gotta do this, right? 1994 Crime Act. They allocated 200 million dollars to order to put uh, the hire more college educated officers because they felt that putting them in communities. They would be able to help reduce violence. We spent almost probably a billion of dollars since 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 the, the turn of the century, the twentieth century, on this based on conventional wisdom. Uh, and, and so the question is, uh, we have a, the most educated police force that we've had in a long time, not because of policies, but it follows the general trends in society. And people say, well, this doesn't seem like things are getting any better, even though we quote unquote have better quality people. Mm-hmm. As long as the mission remains that of warrior, yep. you can talk guardian all day, but we train our officers like they are going out to uh, combat a foreign enemy, mm-hmm. and then we incentivize them to do so, even though that's only about 10% of the job, you can understand why we have these issues. And then if education is at the heart of police reform, if we don't do the reward structure, we've been doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. And uh, is that empirical? Is it opinion? Is it a mix? Probably the latter. Uh, but I think there is some credence to it. Oh, for sure. I mean, if you think about, so like, I'm glad that you mentioned the the civil rights stuff, right? Because uh, Elizabeth Hinton's book, 
Um, if you if you've looked at it, she's brilliant, right? Yes, like, it's one of those books where like I I started reading it. I was ta- I was talking to uh, some students about it last night. Like I read two pages and then I need a nap, <laughs> like to to digest because it's her work is so brilliant. But like in there, she talks about how like uh, under LBJ or like, I guess Kennedy and then LBJ, like there's all this work done on poverty and especially poverty in black communities and that's where all these policies came from but nobody stopped to like think like we should talk to the community about what what do they think is going on and and, and, like but i mean that applies to what you just said now with police too right like we we're gonna we're gonna from the government standpoint like develop these policies and programs about policing without actually asking the police what <laughs> they want right and like we're still gonna allow like all this hype to go on about like you said the the warrior culture and like all the post 9-11 uh you know worry that your neighbor's a terrorist kind of stuff um without ever actually like saying like if you guys could come up with on your own independently like the dream version of your job what is it what does it look like <laughs> And I would tell you, like, you know, just from my experiences and reading and just, you know, is they want that autonomy. They want to be able to use uh, that. Most officers want to do good, right? They uh, they are out of policing because, you know, that was the game. Mm-hmm. And, and and this is the thing, you know, this is this, this is the whole CJ system. You think about even prosecutors where, like, you want to move up as a prosecutor, you need to have, like, a 90 to 95% win percentage. This is a system based on winning. Mm-hmm. And as part of the system based on winning, guess what there is also? A loser. Yeah. The useful loser are poor people and communities of color and where police are deployed areas no follow they're on because of structural inequities and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And you have this game going on in this space. Mm-hmm. It's about winning. Even as an officer and, 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 and I don't disengage because it's ingrained that I must win at all costs. And so instead of de-escalating, you know what I'm going to do? I want to show how big and bad I am. I want I'm, it's the code of the street for officers as well that we forget about, and I may be more inclined toward that, particularly if their culture is strong of the bravado mm-hmm. and machismo. Mm-hmm. And and to ramble a little bit longer, think about this: if we, we want to hire more people of color, we want to hire more women, right? Research shows that that, that, that based on race and, uh, and and gender, that in some cases uh, you may want certain things in a job, right? So we bring uh, people of color because they can be uh, more successful in community engagement and, and, and being allowed in these communities. We bring women on, whether it's sexist or, 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 or patriarchal or not, because uh, the ethics of care, mm-hmm. right? And that type of, uh, of approach is different than uh, the, the machismo. How are you able to talk about your scholarship in, in your classes? Um, if, if you can't tell, I'm, I'm pretty animated, right? <laughs> and, and the discussion that I'm having with you right now is usually what I'm, I'm doing. I'm mm-hmm. asking them, so why would you want to join the police department? Oh, you know, to serve and protect. So you gonna do it for free? Uh, do you want to? Do you want to be a, a, a boot on the ground uh, for, the, for for 20 years? Do you want to be promoted? What do you do? You want to be on a midnight shift for your whole career? Mm-hmm. Get them to start and have them start thinking like that. Like, mm-hmm. what? Why do we need police? What should their role ideally be in society? Mm-hmm. Society. Well, and then I asked them, well, can we change the hearts and minds of people? Like, voila, we're going to change your hearts and minds. And they're like, no. And I always tell them, listen, carrots and sticks. You can, you can change, you, you can 
shape behavior with sticks. But my God, if you're able to use carrots and give people ownership and incentivize them and, and to do the, the behaviors that you want to see, that's a much longer lasting strategy as opposed to I'm just and, and legitimacy. And it's good for morale, right? Uh, you don't want a police department where morale is low, right? And I'm going to get into conversation like that. So imagine you got a police department full of frustrated people. Mm-hmm. And your police officer right now, all this stuff is on the news. Are you immune from this? Do you live in the vacuum? No. So does that impact you? And then we go on and start talking about implicit bias. And I talk about my own biases, mm-hmm. right? Now, I always use the example, you know, if I'm walking down the street at 2 in the morning, and the Migos on the same side of the street I am, or the Golden Girls are coming. If I see the Golden Girls, I'm probably going to stay and feel all right, right? And, <laughs> and I'm a black man. And so, you know, it's really about being transparent with them and, and letting them know that we all have these biases in regards to if we have a college education or not. In moments of stress, maybe the most woke person in the world, but in moments of stress, those biases uh, will, uh, will emerge. And so, we're kind of having those conversations of the source and then asking whether we're going to bring on college-educated people. Are we going to pay them? You know, is it going to be the case like in, in, uh, in Oklahoma where teachers are making less money than quick trip managers, right? Is that going to be the case? And so it's just, and, and we're going to pay them, uh, how do we formulate mm-hmm. what's the proper pay? You know, uh, if we give police officers a raise, what about teachers? Mm-hmm. What about firemen? And so I try to talk to them in a, in, in, in a systems approach. Mm-hmm. Let them know that even though we're disconnected, everything is still really connected. And whether I'm talking about education, whether I'm talking about um, the process, the mechanisms of imprisonment from arrest uh, to pretrial uh, issues, mm-hmm. uh, vocal concerns, and, and all the way up to uh, appeals and, and parole, it's all connected. And when I'm teaching police officers, I mean, well, policing courses, I really focus on the police's role, police officers' role in the greater scheme of things. The, the decisions they make are much bigger than just that one arrest. Mm-hmm. And so try to get them thinking in, in that mind frame to understand when they enter this field, uh, what's their position and role in society. And but also understand that, you know, nobody you know, gets the job, graduates college and goes to become a police officer or work in the justice field to be homeless either. And so it's just trying to find that balance and, and giving them just a realistic dose of reality. Yeah, the money part of it, it's really interesting too, right? Because at least in my experience, a lot of students aren't really familiar with civil asset forfeiture and, you know, how, how many departments uh, run entirely on that. And like the game, right, between departments and and state government to be like, where the state's going to say, we're going to slash your budget because we need to, for whatever reason, right, uh, whether it's legitimate or just political. Um, so we're going to slash your budget, um, but we're also going to then turn a blind eye to you guys just uh, <laughs> <laughs> like grifting in the community, basically. And so, like in one of my classes this semester, I I taught about um, uh, the NYPD in the, around the turn of the twentieth century, right? So, um, the the case of Charlie Becker. Charlie Becker was an NYPD officer who was um, executed. Um, the, the only, I think, the only, op- uh, the only member of the NYPD um, sent to the chair um, because wow. he, Charlie Becker, was a professional grifter. Um, back when the NYPD was, um, I mean, there, so New York, New York City used to have it was called the Gambling Commission. I think it was the mayor, the chief of police, and two state senators, and their their task was to try to block, like, figure out policies to prevent like all of the illegal gambling in the city. And instead, what it was was 
um, they were the top of the chain, like accepting all the bribes. So like making a fortune. And so Charlie Becker came in and was part of that, that scam. Um, and he, he was, uh, he was executed because he, he murdered a gambler. (laughs) Um, and so like talking about that and then, and using that as a way to branch into like the civil asset forfeiture stuff, and and like the stuff that we're seeing now too with like and again it's an NYPD thing but it's I'm sure it's happening in other departments with uh, the the outrageous amount of overtime and like the the in the actual impossible <laughs> overtime hours that guys are clocking like doubling their salary and then some and and students who come into to this major right thinking that because they've heard on TV how underpaid police are. Um, from like political pundits making that argument right and then i'm like well but they're they're actually not you're you're gonna make more as more than i do um for sure (laughs) Um, right away uh, on top of on top of you know whatever not that not that you will be involved in a grift but certainly you're gonna be tempted um you're gonna have a chance to make up make a fortune um and they they're genuinely shocked by that yeah, I mean, they think misconduct and those things and, and corruption are just for, like, morally corrupt people. <laughs> and you mentioned overtime. You know, whether it's overtime in the agency or overtime, you know, I was a, a, a interim captain, and I still was bouncing in clubs, right? Uh, you know what I mean? And so, so imagine, so, so imagine you got your office working, what, 18-hour, 12, not 12, 14-hour, 16-hour shifts, and doing it overtime. And some of them may be working part-time jobs. This is why pay is important. In stressful situations, how the hell can you make good decisions? Yeah. If you're tired and overworked and you're worried about finances. And, and, and to me, uh, that's an issue. Like, I know people say, well, you can you can uh, have merit pay. Yeah, merit pay is only going to do so much. And what does merit pay incentivize? The mission and the things that are prioritized. So I would hypothesize that if you put in merit pay, keep the same reward structures, you're going to have... More over police in certain areas, and so like uh, we have to understand what makes workers tick and look at policing as an industry. Uh, and because what happens is we don't look at it that way. Officers become scapegoats, and officers in many cases are just as big as a victim of the game as the citizens who are, are using the short end of the stick of the game. Right? As long as we make them scapegoats, we won't really have reform. We're not thinking about it in that way. It's not to remove responsibility, but. Come on now, I keep using the word vacuum. They don't, their behaviors and, and decisions don't happen in the vacuum. And so uh, that's why I really, really try to bring home to uh, to my students. And, 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 and I've even had students at the end, it's like, you know what, I don't want to do policing. And I was like, you know what, that's great, because I'd rather do it now than end up on one of these, uh, these dash cams or one of these body cams. And so, For sure. Yeah. Even what you just said, like, that's got to, I mean, I assume that you tell students that, that you were you're bouncing well, you're an interim captain. Like you must have seen so much stuff on that job, and and again, like most people would never, would never put that together as like. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and it's and it's it's, it's um, it's a, it's a big issue. So you no, know, I'm doing research now. That again, looks at merit pay. I'm doing research also that trying to figure out the, uh, a formula to calculate uh, like a fair wage uh, type of formula, whether. Uh, using the, the, the denominator uh, is the, the average salaries of other civil servants in the area or the median household income. Mm-hmm. And the, if officers who make above that threshold, right, say that threshold is equal to one or above one, means officers are really, really doing well, 
Are their behaviors different over time as opposed to agencies who are on the death threshold? Mm-hmm. So these are just a line of things. I'm, I'm, I know I'm trying to tell a story. Yeah. Hopefully, it'll take me a hundred years to do so. <laughs> but trying to tell a story empirically that 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 adds a nuance to it because there's so many holes there. There's so many. Uh, I won't say misconceptions, but it's a it's a lot of empty slots. Yeah. So you can have a great story, but if you're missing main points, it's a completely different story. Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. So I'm I'm curious, and if this is like a really dumb question, then we can edit it out. Uh, <laughs> so like one thing that comes up a lot is the issue of police living in the community where they're working. I'm just I'm just generally curious, like what are your thoughts on that? Because I mean, where I live locally, they they discourage it. Uh, so I don't know. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. You know what? I have indicators for that. Maybe I should do a. Maybe I should get another paper. Maybe we can work on that. Right? <laughs> nice. Uh, uh, but as an officer, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. There's no. There's no damn way that that, that that I would do it because you're never off the job. Yeah. Right. Uh, and particularly right now, do we think that by requiring officers to, to be in their community that they're going to use less force less often? We keep the same reward structures. You think uh, that if officers live in the communities that uh, that that it will make uh, the bond with his neighbor stronger when when the, the, the public distrust runs so deep and not before Michael Brown, not before this, not before the civil rights. I'm talking about man historically and not just simple around the world, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, I'm not sure if that strategy now uh, is something you want to adopt system wide. Given the current circumstances, you hear about and these are anecdotes. You, you, I mean, these are our one-offs. But you have officers being ambushed. You have officers who are, are being attacked in their own homes, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that's one, and then two hundred billion. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But that's one too many, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, I'm not sure what the does it give you added investment in community? Yeah, but it's not like it was my mom and pops growing up. Are we who are your neighbors? It's not that way anymore. Yep. So I'm not sure in this day and time. Um, just a, a, an opinion, personal opinion, that if that really matters, and if it it may matter if you uh, have a have a suite of other policy changes, and that's the last one mm-hmm. uh, that's staggered and introduced over time, how to use other policies to repair those relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the uh, the incentive is not enough, the money's not enough. And I'm an officer. I, I I mean, I had opportunities to do it, and I I wouldn't do it. Yes, yeah. safety reasons are just I, I want to have peace. I didn't want like if something happens in the neighborhood. Oh. Officer Johnson, though, let's go bother him. Uh, I'm not being paid for that, no disrespect, but you know, that's that, that it is what it is. You yeah. know what I mean? And so, um, some places do it, and maybe it'll work in a in a in a smaller uh, jurisdiction, uh, but like Atlanta, a Memphis, a New York, a Baltimore, a Chicago, mm-hmm. um, you know, good luck with that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting because it. I think it kind of romanticizes the role of the police, right? I mean, it's 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 trying to make the Andy Griffith show like a real thing, right? Where Andy Griffith is like he's the sheriff, but he's like a wise sage, <laughs> and, and that's what we want. And I don't know, maybe it's just that like people have become so, I guess, disgusted with like political leadership. That that should be like representing that that problem solving, just like general like everything that you want from a leader, and it's not happening because everything has become so polarized and again like career oriented, right? Instead of instead of community oriented, that people now look to the police to do that, but then that can't happen because the same sort of career orientation 
has happened there and like lack of autonomy and everything else yeah, leadership you mentioned that political that's the thing you know i'm never sure if the, if the public if we're upset uh at the police or we are set at the government and they're the only uh tangible ass, uh, assets we have to the government or, or some combination of both right yeah it's probably, but uh it's hard to tell which one has the most magnitude in that and and it's and you're right because all the political rhetoric, the racialization and, and the politicalization of everything has further deepened that divide between communities and, and police. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not it's not helping it. I mean the news media coverage is not helping it either because of course they need ratings. And so they're not gonna show the Andy Griffin story. Mm-hmm. Like I always talk about is a, a, a story um you no know, I was changing I changed a flat tire for uh a, a elderly lady who was raining one night and my supervisor came back for the roll call. He's like, the hell you doing man? We don't pay you for that. Right? And we, we pay the rent crime and make traffic stops and, and, and do these things and mm-hmm. then lock you up. Uh, and so, like, as long as that mentality is is is, is pervasive, man, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to, to mend that. The divide is, is going to get deeper. Like, mm-hmm. how do we move past it with this political rhetoric? Can we recover? Mm-hmm. I would be optimistic and say, yeah, but it's, it's kind of hard to see that right now. You know, I, I, yeah. I keep grabbing away, I, I, I keep plugging away, keep having ideas. Uh, but it's like we live in a in a world now where where it's about emotion and not logic. Yeah, uh, it, it's about how you feel instead of empiricism. Mm-hmm. And uh, like we, have, we as researchers have to find a way uh, to work with both groups. I think like I think the honest really falls on us. I think that we are positioned um, uh, more so than a lot of other institutions to to, to bridge that gap. Uh, now, how will it work when you know, a lot of people look at you no know, you no know, no. Uh, these institutions, institutions uh, are, are part of the, are part of that public system. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think we're really positioned um, uh, to do so, at least locally. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and start from that. Nobody wants to do grassroots, but it seems like all the other channels are are are, are filled, and the bandwidth is clouded with uh, politics and 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 uh, and, and, and half truths. Yeah. So, well, I uh, I have made public scholarship like a major part of my career. So if you get the itch, uh, I am doing lots of stuff um, to try to because um, I think I think it's our responsibility, and it's been like a thing for me post tenure. Like I, I got to do something. <laughs> I can't. I can't not. Yeah, my wife and I. Know, you know, she's a, a professor here as well too, and and um, we've so I did a three paper dissertation, and I did that. Purposely because I wanted to spend this year not sacrificing a tenure track. You know, you have to peer review and talk journals and all that, whatever, right? But, you know, you balance that with that public scholarship because the public, they don't have uh, they don't have uh, uh, subscriptions to criminology yeah. or criminal policy. They don't have that. So how do we, and, and if, you, if, you're, if you're a researcher, because uh, my wife just, uh, I didn't know this, if you want to have an open access paper, you gotta pay. Yep. Right? And so it's like, if that's the case, how do we get around it? We write op eds. Mm-hmm. Or like at least I was telling you about the police shooting. i am gonna publish it through the think tank. And mm-hmm. we have great people like you know, Rick Rosenfield, uh uh Raphael, Bill Sable, uh Rackley. We have really good scholars there. Uh, and they can review it. And so instead of taking a six months to a year, lucky, yeah, right? <laughs> lucky. Maybe, right? This guy this this scholarship can be out there right now. During election season, and really providing nuggets of, of, of insight that people don't have, mm-hmm. right? Uh, before, not before you vote, but also before you make policy decisions, right? 
uh, to inform candidates on how they talk about these things or how they see these things. Uh, and that's really it. I mean, Bill and I did a, a, a research project on the impasse of the 1994 crime bill uh, with the same think tank for on a, on a prison population. What we found was that the crime bill was only established, states were already moving in this direction. The federal government, we decided to incentivize them. Mm-hmm. And what we also saw that after 94, prison growth precipitously declined. We had more, the, the population was growing because we were stacking more people on top of people for longer times. But the actual growth rate declined. And does that outweigh the fact that mass incarceration was still real? No, but it provides more nuanced insights mm-hmm. uh, to it. And so that's the type of scholarship that you're right, man. I think it's important. And, 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 and as a young scholar without tenure, it's like I, I always tell people, I can't be intimidated by tenure. Uh, I have to do what's right. I'm going to write, I'm writing my post, I'm doing all this stuff. But if it means doing double the work, then so be it because we're privileged to be in this position. Yep. Yeah, and I wish more people had that attitude that you do. I commend you for that. That's, that's incredible. Um, so I got to ask, and you can say no to this question too. Um, what made you decide to transition from law enforcement into academia? And if you, if you, I'm sure you've had to answer this like 10 trillion times. If you want to tell me to shove off, that's fine. I can, I can take it. I'm just like, I think people would want to know. It's a great question. So, um, I met my wife around the time where I was just, I was frustrated. Um, kind of moved up, and the truth is, I couldn't move up any farther unless uh, somebody died or somebody retired. I mean, that's the, I mean, that's the honest to truth. And uh, so, just frustrated. Uh, didn't feel like I was making a difference. And at some point, I realized that everybody that I'm in Memphis, a predominantly black city, everybody I arrested looked like me and had the same background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I trained officers in, in lethal force. I trained officers in defensive tactics. I trained officers show the pen restraints, right? But guess who they're going to use it on? People that look like me. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a black guy in policing in the South, I, I, I had a, a strange relationship, a, a strained relationship. I could be in uniform leaving the office with my captain bars on. Mm-hmm. And see, I'll have somebody pulled over like, what the hell is that disparaging name doing bothering every citizen? So, like, it's, it's walking paradox. And um, uh, my wife, and you know, we, we decided to do this. We did music for a while, and we lived in, lived in, lived in Branson, Missouri, on Hillbilly Lane. That's what neighbor who had a Confederate flag the size of his roof. Uh, I would throw uh, barbecues. What's the blackest thing I can do? I'll throw a barbecue in the front yard, uh, in front of the street, in front of his house, right? I'll piss him off, right? Uh, uh, we moved to Jamaica for a while, and uh, I went back to school uh, to finish my bachelor's degree, uh, came back to Tennessee years later to do my master's. And I thought, I'm going to do my master's and I'm going to teach online on the beach in Jamaica. Go back. <laughs> I was like, damn, I missed that train. I got to get a doctor's degree. <laughs> uh, 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 I, I had a, and really, I only had two black tenured professors that, um, in my career. And he stopped class. I'm on the black guy. He stopped class and said, what, what are you doing? What you want to do? I said, I don't know. I thought about research and this and this. He said, you know what? Come and talk to me. And he provided me with data. He was my, my thesis uh, director chair. And I caught the bug because I saw that you can make points and validate them without, without asking, having to argue that point, right? That you can speak speak truth as far as numbers or, 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 or interviews allow you to speak it. Uh, I didn't want to be a police scholar. Mm-hmm. I was looking at uh, juvenile justice, the school prison pipeline. Yeah. And uh, Richard Wright, I love Richard. He pulled me to the side and said, I know you're working on something else, but 
uh, I've always had this question. Um, how am they getting it wrong? And so, of course, I'm already here. Uh, I came in because, like, you know, I got to teach school. Now, once I teach online, I got to get that doctor degree, right? I got to get that PhD. And my wife, she was doing it as well. And we came together. And it wasn't really until I, I, I got here that I, re- I understood the magnitude, the gravity of the responsibility, and that a light switched on. It's like, damn, I have something to offer. I don't have to run from policing research. Uh, I can add my own flavor to it. And, and, and that was really what that got me here, but also got me back to police and research. I had to give it to um, I had to give it to Richard Wright. Like I, I, I did not want to do it, and um, uh, and I, I fell back in love with the uh, the profession. I I was able to look at it more objectively. Mm-hmm. Uh, those strange feelings of race and policing and and and, and being black and blue, um, there's a benefit to it. Uh, because it's kind of all coming back coming back together, and and and, mm-hmm. and it provides me a unique perspective that I didn't realize was unique. So, um, uh, yeah, we're, we're here. I don't know where it's going to lead us, but um, my wife and I, we do work together. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a goal of ours, and we're going to see where it takes us, but that's awesome. how we got here. That's so cool. Congratulations. Like, that's so cool. Um, Thanks, and, and, yeah, like, this, this industry does not... Uh, it does not encourage people trying to be unique. <laughs> <laughs> right at least at least past generations of scholars i mean mainstream american criminology is very dull and conservative and like i don't know vanilla on white bread sandwiches right with their career on things, of course, it's natural for me to be a little bit more defensive about things that are counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, uh, Rick Rosenfeld and Richard Wright, two fellows, uh, the paper got rejected several times because it was counterintuitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tried to go outside the, 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 the field because we didn't feel like we could get a fair shake, and we finally got published in a good journal. But it was that. A reviewer came back, I don't trust uh, anything in this analysis. Really? <laughs> really, really, right, and so or this, this, and this, and these things, and so uh, and, and and we changed, we did these things, and the findings, in, in fact, actually got stronger in mm-hmm. some instances, right? Yeah, and so uh, it finally got published, and it, and it picked up some traction in the news media because we wrote a popular piece in the conversation about it, right, to get that word out, and so uh, but yeah, I learned early that uh, when people have skin in the game, uh, we have to realize that look, we're scientists. You know, we're racist people, mm-hmm. right? But still, at the end of the day, <laughs> uh, we are human, and, and, and we we are slave to human desires, emotions, and uh, proclivities. So I learned that early in this game. Yeah, and that's interesting too. Like, I mean, with everything that's happened in the past year, with some journals getting caught. Uh, uh, I don't think I need to say any more for people who are listening to this. Everybody's everybody's finishing the sentence on their own, um, and how like that contributes right to mistrust of the numbers, and then like you know the growing uh, recognition that we're only publishing significant findings that uh, are really confirming uh, what like there's already a mountain of literature, right, and and every study is just like a, a subtle twist. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, 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 I'll throw an uh, <laughs> action term in there. Okay. Uh, yeah. The margins command and check the margins and get the same damn thing. Okay, all yep. right. Yeah, yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> and, 
and so like we're missing a lot of conversations that are like i don't know i might i might edit this part out too uh i kind of want to start a journal that's just about insignificant findings (laughs) it's just like what shit are we doing that's not working because i think that's a, a super important part of the conversation that's not out there uh, I mean, so, imagine, please education, imagine that. Imagine I say, oh, well, oh, oh, the character will find, or, or, or uh, the find is insignificant, and I heard people saying, we gotta spend more money on education. <laughs> now, all of that, hypocrite, but in, in, in some instances, that can, that's malpractice and immoral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and so, and again, like, that all feeds back into, like, what are we telling the public? What are we actually accomplishing with what we're doing if everybody just wants to publish stuff that everybody already agrees with? Uh, at, at what point, then, are you not being objective? <laughs> you know? And, 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 and then I was telling you about the thing with, our, with Rick and Richard. Like, that's... That was a rude awakening. I come in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, naive, apparently, that mm-hmm. innovation... This space is about innovation, about seeking the truth. Mm-hmm. That, and I will say, I've been trained here. You know, the child of Georgia State, uh, it's prim department. They trained us. Like, listen, this is the game, right? But this is real science. Mm-hmm. This is real science to go after, right? Uh, don't just write a little paragraph about your methods. Explain. It should be like a recipe. Like yes. it should be like a cookbook. Yeah. I, now, mind you, now mind you, my, how I may follow your red velvet cake recipe, <laughs> and it may be a red velvet cake. It may not taste the damn same. But I got a real building again, and the replication is important. Yeah, I, I, mean, I almost think that, and of course, nobody wants to do this right, and I get it too. The skill in the game, but if you have data, it should be a depository, uh, repository uh, at these journal outlets where, like, if somebody has an issue, a question, just go in and pull it. Let's verify the data. I mean, like, there has to be a way to get our legitimacy back. And then I'm just, I just walked in and I, like I know all the damn things. But as a newcomer, these the skepticism about science, all these things, I come in. Harboring that, and, and, I, and I think that's an advance because it's like no, 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 no. Like you said, talk to the police if we're going to tell them what they're going to be doing. Well, you know, I, I'm a newcomer. I was, I was an outsider, and now I'm here, and and that outsider milk uh, is still behind my ears, right? <laughs> and so, like, I think it's important that we tell the whole story because we need the public to trust us mm-hmm. with, with the the outcries of fake, fake news, yep. with the CDC posting things and then taking it down and showing that they are on the thumb of political pressure. Yep. If we can't remove politics and religion from our science, we might as well just man do away with, with all the science. If that's the case, because you know uh, we don't have a leg to stand on. Yep. Uh, and, and we might as well be fictional writers. If that's the case. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because we're just. I mean, I tell I tell students like you know if you go into Barnes and Noble or wherever. I guess whatever bookstores are left um, and look in the social sciences part, like you're going to see books by uh, Michael Moore and Sarah Palin and stuff. And like, that's not social science. That's a, that's commentary and opinion. And they're, they're telling you stuff to scare you or, and, or confirm what you already think to sell money. Like that's not the social science part. I also like that you use the recipe analogy. Cause I, I have this whole thing about like on methods day, like who here can cook or what, what do you, what's your best dish? And like, like and then and, and like kind of like really clowning it up right like you know kids like I, I make a good I don't know like stir fry like what do you put in it <laughs> how do you do it right and or like have you ever tried to get a recipe from grandma and <laughs> grandma's like you know a pinch of this or whatever I saw something on Twitter last week about somebody 
somebody's grandma's recipes were based on the dollar amount of the ingredients (laughs) and how how useless that is now right like what was a dollar worth of (laughs) anything (laughs) and i go that's that's totally like you can't like that whole family history is lost whatever grandma's recipe was um Yeah. Um and and so just like, you know, following a recipe you wanna So yeah, the last thing I want to talk to you about, because I bet you probably because of your, your past life policing and now uh, having all the academic training, I bet you have a lot of fun with students coming in with some of their, their myths about what your classes are going to be like, what the major is going to be like, uh, what policing is going to be like. And I'm guessing, too, from your personality that you probably have some fun ways of debunking those myths and breaking some hearts about all the profiling jobs that are out there. <laughs> I'm, sure, I'm sure your students are after. <laughs> I mean, I even say one, like, you know, I'm, I'm very hands-on. And so, uh, you know, students are uh, with the whole, uh, the police shootings. Uh, well, why did they shoot him here? Or why didn't they do this? Or why, when the guy was coming toward him, he just back up and do some Superman move? Let's <laughs> that, do it. You're the officer, all right? I want to give you this pen to put in your pocket, all right? It's 21 feet. I want to run towards you at half speed, and I want to see how you respond. And that's really eye-opening, right? Like, like, wow, like it's much more difficult than, 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 uh, than we thought. Uh, or I love sharing stories. I think I had one guy who said, oh, I'm a police officer because I want to I wanna run and gun and do all these things and do all these things. And uh, I told him the job was really like. He was like, really? I was like, so if that's the reason why you joined the job, I'm not comfortable with you being a police officer. If you want action, right? Uh, I remember I had another young lady when, you know, a police in course and I'm just talking about the the, 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 the responsibility, uh, the the gravity of the job, uh, how like you really are the resource and and have uh, you have more expectations for you than the resources you're providing. At the end of the class, she was like, you know what, I want to be a police officer, but she's like, I think I want to do something else. And you know, I've had several of them do that. It's not the run away from the force. It's like it's it's, it's to police it's to police that right. We're, we're 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 gatekeepers of sorts, right? And so I'm not trying to. Purposely discourage them, but I want to tell them the truth. Mm-hmm. Or if I ask them a question like, um, uh, "Do white officers kill more uh, black people than uh, than black officers?" Oh yeah, 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 oh yeah, definitely. That definitely the white people killing black people. <laughs> Show me the research. Mm-hmm. Research says that you know, in the blue is blue, baby, right, <laughs> right, and you behave accordingly. And so I just really uh, teaching about how, or they their answers to, uh, to 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 questions on reform are just. So simple and 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 and, and, and unilayered, and just having the conversation like we had earlier, talking them talking them through these conversations. And so, like, uh, I, I love using videos. I have uh, one video again. I keep talking about police shootings that seem to be popular. Where it was a guy who was a uh, the major protester, the leader of protests in, uh, in, in in Ferguson. Well, he got an opportunity to go through some training, and his perspective totally changed, mm-hmm. and, and it's mind blowing. Uh, for the students. Um, I also talk to students when we talk about mass incarceration. Because, you know, 
you come in, you people like on one side of the coin. Oh, due process are totally uh, crime control. Like there is a a dichotomous choice. That's a false choice. It's not a dichotomy, right? So having those those conversations with them, and so it's just you know really uh, just being honest with them, uh, being frank with them, right? I can have a potty mouth in class, but I think they get the picture, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I just I can only be myself. Um, and those are kind of some of the, some of the, some of the examples of really like like man like this is not what you think it is. Oh, the mass incarceration. So if somebody commits a crime, they should go to jail, right? Yes. Is that for every crime, right? And so think about it. You think, with mass incarceration. Who was who was impacted? All the people in jail. No, their families, right? So what happened to those families? What happened if, if, if black people were black men were mass incarcerated disproportionately? What happened to those families? I don't know. Let's look at the research. Oh, we see black women joined the workforce or went back to school. They didn't turn to crime, right? And then we look at the opioid epidemic. Now this is now this is starting getting more toward anecdotal as opposed to the pure empirical, but just to get them thinking. Mm-hmm. So with the opioid epidemic that leads to the mass well, the treatment or incarceration of, 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 of white men and white people particularly, how does it impact the white family now in these rural areas in particular? How will these women be able to raise, raise their families? Will they turn to crime? Will they go to school? What trends society wide does that have an impact on? Mm-hmm. And so I, I think when I talk to them in, in, in that way, it lets them really understand the gravity of the field, mm-hmm. the importance of the field, the undervalue that the field is given in every instance, and, and, the, and the immense responsibility uh, of having life and liberty in our mm-hmm. hands. And so uh, that's really the point I want my kids to get, my kids, my students mm-hmm. uh, to get. And but he mentioned the unidimensional thing too, and just with the mass incarceration part of it, there are so many opportunities to like keep pulling that thread, right? So uh, for mothers uh, who who are now like functionally single mothers, like turning to crime or going to school aren't necessarily mutually exclusive, right? Yeah. <laughs> or or where where how far away is the prison from where they live? Because in some states it might not be a big deal, but if it's California. Pennsylvania, Georgia, Texas, right? Like that could be impossible, you know. <laughs> and, the thing is, and, what if, and what if that mom decides to turn to crime? She needs to go get formula for that kid, mm-hmm. or keep the lights on, or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Does she the same punishment as someone else? Mm-hmm. And if she doesn't, how do we articulate that she deserves different punishment? These are the dilemmas that are faced by practitioners every day. So guess what? We're never going to get it completely one hundred percent correctly. Correct. All we do is try in good faith to do so. Mm-hmm. That's why we have immunity, even though it's been perverted. That's why we have these these safeguards in place so we can pursue justice mm-hmm. in a manner that's equal or fair and leave room for you know uh, to err as human. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I I think like the humanity part of it to to bring it back to what we were talking about a little bit ago uh, has been totally beaten out of it by like any number of for any number of reasons. Everybody needs to take a deep breath. <laughs> yeah. that's, that, that's, that's, that's what it is. The deep breath is. I think the main thing that researchers can do is provide be a center of gravity. The main thing that scholars can do is try to provide some objectivity and be a resource. Uh, we don't have to be advocates. We don't have to do all this. And people are uncomfortable. I get it. Uh, we want to keep that objectivity. But we can probably our skills in a way where we can remain objective. And look, give people the truth. And they can they can interpret it, but we need to make sure that they what they're interpreting is real. And um, 
Uh, how do we get back to it? Like we talked about the delegitimacy of uh, the, the legitimacy threat to to the government. I mean, like I said earlier, you know, our 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 sciences are under just as big of a threat. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, um, uh, these next couple years will uh, these next couple weeks will be big on how. Uh, you know, you know we, we we go about it. You know, it's going to be hard because, like, some people are going to going to agree with certain policies, but it's the more the moral the moral part of they want, and they're going to be constrained. And and, and, I, and I get it, so it will be pretty interesting, regardless of what the outcomes going to be. Yeah, landscape. Yeah. Uh- a note for, I guess, historical purposes. We're recording this on September 23rd. Uh, it will feel like a few years between now and whenever this does come out. <laughs> well, that's good, we may find out that we're, uh, like, wow, we had some prophetic talk over it. This could be fun. Yeah, when you're downloading this, I hope your, your bunker has good Wi-Fi and whatever war breaks out <laughs> between... Now and that, or like when the asteroid hits, and <laughs> you know the the life they found on Venus invades, <laughs> or War of the World stuff. Like, make sure you listen to Antonia tracks. <laughs> It'll be a good time. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thad. Uh, I I genuinely appreciate this so much. Hey, Andy Wilzak again. So, I uh, hope you enjoyed this week's show as much as we enjoyed putting it together. If you did, we would really appreciate it if you left us positive reviews, five-star ratings on iTunes and all of the other podcast places that you can do this stuff. And more importantly, this show thrives on word of mouth. So we are doing this completely through social media. All of the guests that we've had are people that I found on Twitter. <laughs> so if you are untenured and you are in any kind of academic discipline or you have an advanced degree and are working out in the field and you want an opportunity to come on the show and hype your stuff, please reach out. You can follow us on Twitter at Untenured Tracks or me at Hey Dr. Will. That's H-E-Y-D-R-W-I-L. Please send me a message on one or both accounts and we will book you on the show. It doesn't matter what your discipline is. I know that a lot of our previous interviews have been sociology and criminology based because that's my background, but I am open to anybody. So again, please rate and review the show. Tell your friends, tell your people about this, and I'll see you next week. Bye.